Hi, welcome to Broadway Assembly Church Podcast. We are excited for you to be joining us today. If you want to get a notification of the most recent uploads, please subscribe to our podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy. War with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. just sounds like something out of a fiction, work of fiction, doesn't it? We're going to see if we can bring it to uh, some sort of reality as we interpret, I feel, what uh, John was actually seeing. So let's ask the Lord to help us with this tonight. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you, Lord, that you alone know the future, and you reveal what you would want us to see and understand and apply to our lives. So, Lord, here this evening, guide us through this text and continue to open our understanding so that we might be able to gain knowledge that, Lord, will grow our lives And bring us closer to you when it's all said and done. May we be nearer to Christ. In Jesus' name, all God's people say amen. Amen. Praise God. You can be seated. So we have seen that after the sounding of the seventh trumpet, all of heaven declared, quote, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. In short, that victory is being explained here in this parenthetical section, okay, in chapters 12, 13, and 14. We've already seen the child that Satan couldn't stop. Somebody shout out his name. That's right. After Satan loses against Christ, the Christ child, he then reorganizes his efforts to condemn and accuse those whom the child has redeemed. That's the current battle that we're in right now. And last week, that's what we talked about. But we saw last week that he will fail there as well as we looked at the battle that Satan couldn't win. Now, we saw how Satan battled in the heavenlies, but he was ultimately cast down to the earth. He was pretty much confined to the earth. We said now it seems that he has some kind of unexplainable, weird access to the throne in the event that he accuses us before God. That's, that's what the text uh, refers to, but come midterm uh, in the tribulation, he now will lose that access to heaven and thus will no longer be able to accuse any of the children of God before the Lord. That's where we left off last Wednesday, chapter 12 and verse 12. But that loss doesn't mean, how many know that means, doesn't mean that Satan quits or that he gives up. In fact, 
this drives him to launch yet another battle. So tonight, we look at the third area of his defeat, and we're going to call it the woman that Satan couldn't kill. And that's from verse 13, when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. Now, by now in our study, notice on your study guide, Satan is confined to earth, is extremely angry, so he seeks to destroy the woman again. Now, we already learned back in verse 1 of this chapter, somebody tell me who the woman is. It's Israel, okay? So, Satan sets out to persecute her, and the word persecuted literally means, notice on your study guide, to pursue or to chase, or to hunt, okay? When Satan gets permanently removed from heaven, he's no, I don't know what that was. When Satan gets permanently removed from heaven, he's so livid, all he can think about is striking against God. But since God is out of his reach, right, He now goes after God's chosen people. He pursues. He hunts. He tries to chase them down. Okay, verse 14, And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness and to her place. So God will give her wings to protect herself, and with speed and agility, the Jews will vacate Jerusalem. Some commentators identify this great eagle, quote-unquote, as a first-century description of a modern-day military transport. Perhaps the Jews left in Jerusalem will get airlifted out. And there's a passage that may identify for us the location of this end-times wilderness hideout that God has prepared for them. Isaiah chapter 16, verse 4 predicts and says, Let my outcasts dwell with thee, Moab... Be thou a covert to them from the face of the spoiler. Who's the spoiler? The Antichrist. Okay? It says for the extortioner. Who's the extortioner? The Antichrist. Okay? Is at an end. Okay? That's Isaiah 16.4. Let them dwell in Moab. Isaiah 16.1, if we back up a few verses, the prophet mentions the Moabitish city, of Selah, okay, which is, if you study it out in Scripture, we know it as Petra, okay? How many's heard that term, Petra, okay? Some of you may have seen it in the Indiana Jones movie. It was the backdrop for that, one of those last Indiana Jones's movies. And by the way, no, no relation to me, I know But the city of Petra covers, they said, nearly 100 square miles. It's mammoth. But its canyon-like entryway is just a mile long, but just very narrow. It's just a few feet wide, they say. And that makes it very easy to defend. Some say this may be where God keeps the Jews out of Satan's reach in the 
in the last half of this terrible time for if you look at the scriptures, you're going to find it's 1260 days, which is three and a half years. So the event we're dealing with here is a persecution that begins at the halfway point of the tribulation and carries on until the end. Okay, so notice on your study guide, when Satan gets permanently banned from heaven, he is so angry he, that he no longer cares about deception. He only cares about destruction. Okay? And so he manipulates the Antichrist. He sets him on a course of destruction and persecution of Israel. Christ saw this coming, warned the Jews ahead of time. If you go to Matthew chapter 24, that passage is known as the Olivet Discourse. Okay, Satan will be so mad at God for defeating him that he will just seek to vent his fury any way he possibly can. And it centers around destroying the woman, a.k.a. Israel, to whom God has made so many promises. And notice on your study guide, he simply wants to hurt God by hurting those whom God loves. Amen. And how many knows this is nothing new? There have been long historical attempts on nearly every continent to wipe out the Jews. The pages of history are footnoted with the atrocities against Jewish people. Satan hates whoever God loves. The devil crucified Christ, but at this point, Christ is out of his reach in heaven. He once persecuted the church, but by this time in our text, the rapture has taken place, so we're out of his grasp. Now that the Lord and his church are no longer vulnerable, Satan zeroes in on the people group that God chose in the past and will again choose in the future, Israel. So this is nothing new. And in the second century, now, now, uh, last lesson and even the lesson before we mentioned all the different times in Scripture, maybe not all, wasn't an exhaustive list, but quite a few times in Scripture that the devil tried to annihilate the Jews. But let me catch you back up to speed on some past our testaments because in the second century, Jews in Egypt, the Mesopotamia region, were sold into slavery again. So much so that the price of an able-bodied Jewish slave, slave uh, was that of the price of a horse. They were sold, just like horses would be sold. The Crusades, if you studied about in history, began in the 11th century. They slaughtered hundreds of thousands of Jews. A thousand years ago, Jews were banished from England, France, and Germany. They were blamed for the Black Plague. They were treated viciously. You might say, but yeah, but that was the 13th century. That's, that's ancient history. Well, let's move forward. The same year that Columbus discovered America, Spain had driven all the Jews from their country. You say, but that was the unsophisticated 15th century. I mean, people thought Jews were animals and they thought the earth was flat. 
I read just recently an interesting footnote regarding the late 1780s. As France was in an upheaval of its revolutionary bloodbath, Thomas Jefferson had taken the place of Benjamin Franklin as the foreign hero and diplomat from America. And as the power of the monarchy was slipping into the hands of the people, Thomas Jefferson was asked by the National Assembly of France to help write their own Declaration of Independence. And Jefferson had already been mentoring Lafayette, and, and together they worked on the preamble. Without any reference to a creator, the first article simply declares, quote, all men are born and remain free and equal in rights. But however, if you dig deeper into that original Constitution and discover that civil rights were actually denied to three specific categories of people, actors, Protestants, Anybody want to guess? Jews. Being an actor is an occupation that you can, you know, that can be changed. A Protestant is a member of a religious group that you can leave, but a Jew cannot change who he is. And as a result, the great revolution in France left one race of people without the protection of their constitution. And you say, but that was the 1780s. Surely things would change for the Jews after centuries of persecution. Well, about 130 years after the French ratified their constitution, a young man stood in the library, I believe it was the Hofburg or Hofburg Library in Vienna. He said, standing as he often did before the encasement of what many believed to be the spear that pierced the side of Christ was on display there. This young man hated Christ, he hated the Jewish people, and in his 20s, he had overheard a tour guide at this library, library say to his group, this spear is shrouded in mystery, and whoever unlocks its secrets could rule the world. That young man would later say those words changed my life. Standing before that spear, he made a pact with Satan, inviting the powers of the spear that pierced Christ to invade his own life. Another man by the name of Walter Stein, who befriended this young man by the name of Adolf Hitler, wrote that as Hitler stood before that spear, Quote, he stood like a man in a trance. The very space around him seemed enlivened with some sort of strange light. He appeared transformed as if some mighty spirit inhabited his very soul, creating within and around him an evil transformation. Now, that's interesting. I found it interesting to learn that when Hitler victoriously marched through Vienna, he went into this library and he took that spear for himself. He then said, 
I now hold the world in my hands. And without question, this demonically inspired, empowered man would one day march through much of Europe, triumphal in victory. While millions were raising their hands and saluting him, millions of Jews were being gassed and burned to death in the chambers in the deep ovens or inside the concentration camps. In fact, I have a book in my library that oftentimes I just, you know, it's this day in history, and you just flip to it, and you look at the day and what happened in history. And actually, when I look today, it was 84 years ago today, October the 5th, 1938, that Nazi Germany declared all Jewish citizen passports be invalid and marked them with a big red J, selecting them for the upcoming persecution. You say, but that was the early 1900s. The world knows better now. How many know I'm not so sure about that? This hatred for Christ and the Jew has not gone away. How many know the devil has not retired from his primary passion? Even though at the moment, maybe right now he lacks a global crusader, because we're not hearing global crusader in this, but how many know he's still fomenting, organizing, and drawing people into his crusade? An article in the New York Times reported on the popularity of a, po uh, a particular video game in Germany and Australia, actually more than one. They said there's more than a hundred different video games categorized as, quote, KZ Manager. Now, KZ is shorthand for the German words concentration camp. And the game allows a player to run a concentration camp complete with a castle topped with a uh, swastika. The player manages the camp, earns points for gassing prisoners, selling gold fillings taken from the victims. He earns money by selling a series of products crafted by prison labor in order to buy more gas to operate the gas chambers, all of which he must do without raising the awareness of people outside the concentration camp. Jewish watchdog organization reported the popularity of that, those games among European youth. See, recent headlines have announced anti-Semitic Semitic attacks are they're on the rise globally. Incidents are increasing in number and unpredictability. That's why I put on your handout one of the greatest proofs that God is not finished with Israel is that the devil will not leave her alone. Right? Is this making sense? One of Satan's premier passions is the extermination of the Jew. And Satan will try to destroy the Jew along, long after the church has been raptured. Because Satan tries, what he's, what's he trying to do? He's trying to interrupt Bible prophecy. Literally. He knows that if he can get rid of the Jew, he can erase the possibility of God's covenant with them from, and keep it from coming to pass. 
And if God cannot keep his covenant promises of the coming land, the coming kingdom, the coming king, then God is less than God. God then becomes a liar because he promised something he couldn't produce. Right? That's what Satan is trying to... But now, newsflash, Satan's persecution is important to understand even for us today. How many know many in our culture are confused by persecution? Sometimes persecution can throw a believer in a tailspin. Many Christians believe that the love and approval and affection of others is the criteria which proves whether or not they're a good Christian. They think if people love me, then I must, I must look like Jesus. If people hate me, then I must be doing something wrong. I mean, no, that's simply not true. In 1 John 3, 13 through 19, John says that when we love when we're being hated, we will know that we are of the truth. Being loved is not evidence that we are a good Christian. Christ said in Luke 6.26, Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Matthew 5.11 and 12, Christ said, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you, persecute you, shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. What's he say? Rejoice. Be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. That simply means that we should never let persecution rattle us. As if it's some negative indicator. Right? What we learn is that Satan hates those whom God loves. Satan hates those who glorify God. Satan hates those who, I mean, who God has chosen. Satan simply hated the woman because God had loved and chosen her. Simple as that. And Christ told the disciples in John 15, 18 through 19 and 16, 1 through 4, that they should not let persecution surprise them. Don't let it catch you off guard. The world hates us because it's controlled by Satan, and Satan hates Christ. That same hatred is what's being seen here in Revelation 12. Satan is angry. He's been finally removed from heaven, and so he just sits out through his puppet, who's the Antichrist, to hunt down and to kill as many of God's people Israel as he can. It's just pure hatred and rage. And the Old Testament has warned Israel about it. Zechariah 13, 8 and 9 says it's going to be horrific like never before. Christ warned them in Matthew 24 that it's going to be, un I mean, unlike anything they've ever experienced. That means that even the Holocaust under Hitler will not even compare to what the Antichrist will do to the Jews during this time, right? Satan will simply seek to totally annihilate Israel because they are God's chosen people. However, what we find here in this chapter, in this attack, 
is he still a loser? Right? God's not going to allow him to exterminate Israel. Tribulation, yes. Annihilation, no. Verse 13 says that while Satan will set out to kill her, God is going to provide supernatural deliverance. So Israel flees into the desert, a refuge to a place called a, a refuge that God has prepared for her. She's going to be supernaturally fed, nourished, protected there for 42 months. And the nourishment spoken of there is no different than the manna which God provided throughout the wilderness wanderings. Hello. You recall after the Hebrews exited Egypt, God fed them in the desert for 40 years. I think he can handle 42 months. Come on. It'll be like Elijah when he was a fugitive from King Ahab. God hid him in the wilderness and catered him two meals a day. Yeah. If God can take care of Israel and Elijah, how many know he can protect and provide for those future Jews? But of course, Satan's going to lose. But Satan's not finished. Israel escapes that initial onslaught, so Satan just kind of regroups. Look at verses 15 through 16. The serpent, which is the same as Satan, which is the same as the dragon, which is the same as that old devil. All those names through this passage is used interchangeably. And the serpent cast out his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away. Now, in Scripture, floods are usually pictures of destruction. And since Satan cannot reach Israel due to her having escaped into a, a, a wilderness place, he unleashes what is called water as a flood in the text to try to sweep her away. And many commentators feel that famine... And then death represent that river out of the beast's or Antichrist's mouth that will, will, will come. And the Antichrist could not seem to reach Israel with his army because they're in this, this hidden or uh, covert place, as the text says. Okay? He couldn't reach them with an army. So instead, he unleashes a plan to flood them out. It's an all-out attempt of the enemy to wipe out Israel again. But notice next, the earth helped the woman. And the earth opened her mouth, swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out. In short, church, God miraculously causes nature to intervene and save his people again. Hmm? How many times in Scripture has God caused nature to intervene? When Pharaoh had Israel pinned against the wall, what did God do? He split the Red Sea. When the wilderness had Israel in danger of dehydration and death due to lack of water, what did God do? He brought water from a rock. How many times in the Old Testament do we see God causing nature to shift in order to save Israel? We saw hailstones. We see the sun stand still. 
We see rivers and seas dry up. In whatever way Satan tries to remotely kill Israel, God causes nature to intervene and stop it. The direct imagery really is to the days when Korah sought to rebel against Moses and overthrow him. If you remember that story in Numbers chapter 16, in verses 31 and 32, we find the earth opens up and literally swallows Korah and his followers and his family along with their possessions. See, that's the kind of deliverance being seen here. So Satan sets out to kill Israel through war, but God intervenes. Then he attempts to kill her through this flood of famine, plague, whatever, but then God intervenes. Why? Because the devil simply can't win. God made promises to Israel that he is going to keep, right? Christ will reign, and Israel will be there to enjoy the reign. That's the point we should see from this passage. Satan cannot stop what God is doing. Satan's kingdom has lost its power, and despite his rage, there is not a thing Satan can do about it. I don't know about you, but that makes me feel good. Hallelujah. Amen, church. Martin Luther penned that famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And though this world with div, uh, what's it say, with devil's field should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Praise God. How many's heard that song before? Three of you. Maybe we ought to sing that sometime. It's an old hymn. See, Satan cannot destroy God's chosen people. God has promised them a kingdom, and he's going to preserve that promise. But Satan still isn't done. Why? Because he never accepts defeat. Read verse 17. The dragon was wroth with the woman. Went to make war now, since he can't get her. He makes war with a remnant of her seed, her children, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. This verse is really an introductory verse into chapter 13 because we find that when Satan cannot wipe out Israel, he turns his fury toward those who has helped Israel escape through the years. I mean... He's got to kill someone or something. So he turns his fury towards, as the text says, the rest of her seed. I believe this includes some Gentile believers that have gotten saved during the tribulation. This helps us understand why there are so many Gentile martyrs during the tribulation. Remember, if you look back in Revelation 7, Revelation 7 and verse 9, after this I beheld and lo a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations. Kindreds, people, tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms with their hands. Later in that chapter we learn that these were those who had been slain during the tribulation. Okay? They were killed because Satan 
was mad at God, and because God has made Israel somewhat off limits, it's just raw, unbridled, senseless rage against God. And one thing important for us to see is how Satan knows who to attack. He knows who to attack in this scripture. Do you see that? How does Satan spot a true believer? Do you suppose that when Satan goes looking for Christians that he's going to subpoena churches for their membership records? No. Do you suppose that when he goes looking for Christians that he's going to look for people with the symbol of a fish on their car? No. How do you think Satan will go about identifying true believers? Well, oddly enough, Satan will use biblical criteria for identifying true believers. He will look for two attributes in people. He looks for those, the text says, who keep the commandments of God, that's number one, and who hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. These are the two undeniable characteristics of true believers. Let's put, boil it down into two words, obedience and endurance. That's what you got on your handout, obedience and endurance. They obey God and they persevere until the end. These are the byproducts of genuine faith, church. These attributes are so indicative of believers that they are the criteria Satan will use in his attempts to identify them and kill them. In fact, in chapter 13, that's what we see. Satan will pass laws. That's what we're going to see next week, Lord willing. And make cultural realities that make it impossible to hide as a believer. You will either take his mark or you will be faithful to Christ. Those are the only options, right? You will either obey God or obey Satan. How was it that Satan was able to capture Daniel? Anybody remember? By passing a law forbidding prayer. Hello? How was it that he captured Daniel's friends? By passing a law commanding idol worship. How was it that he captured the apostles in the New Testament? By passing a law forbidding evangelism in Jesus' name. They said, don't you use that word again. It's going to be illegal. That's how Satan will make war with true believers in this time. He will use their obedience and endurance as a trap. Does that make sense? He'll use their faithfulness to God against them because he knows that true believers would rather invite suffering upon themselves than deny their Lord. And the rule of the battle is that persecution comes because the enemy hates Christ. And because he hates Christ, he attacks those whom Christ loves, and he identifies them by their devotion and their loyalty. The only way to escape that battle is to be unfaithful to Christ. Tech, uh, texts like 1 John 2, I believe it is, uh, if you go down to about 3 through 6, James 1.22 says a person who claims to be a Christian but who doesn't obey Christ 
is deceiving themselves. Now, that's not an exact quote. That's paraphrasing both of those passages. And we must have endurance, like Matthew 10, 22 says, because Christ said, he that endureth to the end, the same shall be what? Saved. This is the criteria by which Satan identifies believers. And these are the very actions which will put them in danger, and we will see that in the next chapter. Notice, we, we introduced this idea last week because in this chapter it says they will overcome, as we saw last week, because of the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony and because they did not love their lives even when faced with death. How many know Satan loses? He can't stop Christ. He can't condemn the elect that Christ has redeemed. He can't annihilate the Jews. He can't break down the genuinely redeemed. There is not a thing he can do, regardless of his rage, which will stop the inevitable from occurring, and that is the absolute reign of Jesus Christ here on this earth. Jesus is going to reign. Praise God. Hallelujah. Satan is going to lose. And wisdom aligns itself with the winning side, regardless of the difficulty of doing so. So, in conclusion, as Sister Jones comes, Revelation chapter 12, as we conclude, has an amazing description of this first and foremost face of evil called the dragon. And evidently, we need to not only be aware of the dragon's fury and failure, but also how to resist him now in this what's called a dispensation of grace. We need to be able to recognize who he is, how he operates, as well as which weapons we can use against him. The blood of the lamb, the word of God, we talked about last week. Folks, how many know we need to realize who we are in Christ? Praise God. Ephesians 6 tells us, you better get dressed for battle. And you better stay dressed for battle, right? Because our enemy is ruthless. He's bloodthirsty. He's unmerciful. And, and he does not throw rotten tomatoes. He goes for the throat. Hello. He launches insults, accusations against us before God and about God before us. So how do you overcome Satan? Notice on your study guide, remind him of the blood of the Lamb. Blood for sinners slain. Remind him of the Word of God and our testimony that is true. And love Christ more than our own life. While we're at it, let's remember that Satan has already read his future. You know he really has. Do not let him keep you pinned down in defeat in the meantime with his empty threats and with his accusations, right? When he reminds you of your past, you need to remind him of his future. He loses. Christ wins. Claim the blood of Christ daily in your life. Why? Because you're forgiven. Confess your faith publicly before others. Why? Because you are an ambassador. Focus on your everlasting future with Christ. Notice on your study guide, because he is your Lord and Savior. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. 
So claim the blood. Confess your faith. Focus on your future with Christ. Somebody say amen. There's that old chorus, I claim the blood Jesus shed on Calvary. Those precious bloodstains were made there just for me, for all my sin, all my sickness, and all my pain. When I need healing, I just claim those precious bloodstains. All oh, let's stand and let's sing that course if we can as we close this lesson. Hallelujah. I feel the presence of the Lord. Let him minister to you. Hallelujah, hallelujah. I claim the blood Jesus shed on Calvary. Those precious bloodstains. Oh, hallelujah. Just for me, just for you. For all my sin, my sickness, and my pain. Oh, glory to God. Hallelujah. When I need healing, I need healing. I claim those Oh, why don't you claim those bloodstains tonight? I claim the blood. Maybe you felt the enemy around your house this week. Maybe he's been speaking into your thoughts. I don't want you to leave with that lingering in your mind tonight. Why don't you start pleading the blood of Jesus? Start claiming the power in that blood. Hallelujah. Oh, my sin, my sickness, and my pain. When I need healing, I claim those precious bloodstains. One more time. Oh, I claim the blood. Jesus shed on Calvary. Would you take a moment tonight and find a place to do that? Find a place to claim the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Sickness 